0: And thanks for listening.
2: This is Climate One, changing the conversation about energy, economy, and the environment. On today's program, we go from plate to planet. Food writer Anna LaPay remembers reading a United Nations report that made the connection between climate change and livestock production.
0: At the time it was about 18% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, which was more than every single train, plane, and automobile. And I remember thinking, why isn't everybody talking about this?
2: Producing the food we eat makes up a big part of our climate footprint. But Mark Kerlansky says we should be looking for solutions, not pointing fingers.
3: Most farmers and most ranchers and most fishermen do not want to do harm. They do want to earn a living. And if their ways of earning a living are doing harm, you have to convince them that there's a better way to do it.
2: Mark Kurlansky and Anna LaPay, Plate to Planet, up next on Climate One. Is the solution to climate change at the end of your fork? Welcome to Climate One, hosted by Greg Dalton. Have a banana, Anna. Try the salami, Give it to gravy, Davey. Everybody eats when they come to
1: my house.
2: Try the connection between global warming and the dinner table isn't always obvious when we go to the grocery store. But our choices about how we put food on our plates and what we do with the waste contribute to as much as one third of total greenhouse gas emissions. How can we continue to feed a crowded planet without destroying it in the process? Today, Greg talks food with two of the country's most influential writers on the topic. Anna Lepay examines the climate crisis within our food system in her book, Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork and What You Can Do About It. A generation ago, her mother, Frances Moore Lepay, published the revolutionary Diet for a Small Planet. Mark Kurlansky has explored global food history in his best-selling books, Cod and Salt. His latest is Milk a 10,000-year food fracas. Here's their conversation.
1: Anna LaPay, in 2006, you read a report, famous report called Livestock's Long Shadow. How did that set you on the course that you've uh, been writing about? You come from a food family, but how did that... I do. Yeah.
0: Yeah. yeah, so it's not the most dramatic uh, story to tell about how you get sparked about an idea. I was sitting in my Brooklyn Brownstone apartment reading a study from the United Nations, uh, but it was really striking to me. Uh, it was a report that, for the first time, experts really tried to piece together the full climate story of livestock and really tried to determine, if we look at the whole picture, not just you know the food they're eating and not just the methane they're emitting and not just the transport, but all of it together, what do we get? And what they found is that livestock as a whole sector emitted uh, about, at the time, it was about 18% of all global greenhouse gas emissions, which was more than every single train, plane, and automobile at the time. And I remember thinking, why isn't everybody talking about this? And then, of course, you start peeling the layers even more. We don't just eat meat and dairy. We consume a lot of other things. And you look at the whole story of uh, food related food sector-related emissions. And today, that figure is about 30%. So you heard in your intro, you said 14% is agriculture. Well, that's direct uh, agricultural emissions. But put it all together, uh, all of the aspects of food production, from seed to plate to landfill. And you're talking about a third of the crisis. So I got really inspired to dig in and I ended up writing a book about it and to this day continue to explore these questions of how food connects to climate.
1: We'll talk about that in this hour. Mark Kurlansky, uh, you write that milk is the most argued over food in human history and also the most regulated. So how is it the most argued over? That surprised me.
3: Well, yeah, it's always been argued over for like 10,000 years. Um, And it's not surprising if you think about it. I mean, what is milk? It's this bodily fluid that we're supposed to feed to our babies. And, you know, then it, I, I, nobody knows when this moment was. I would have loved to have been there when, you know, either the mother couldn't produce enough milk or the mother had died and somebody said, oh, look at that goat over there. Maybe we can use that. <laughs> I mean, uh, so always tremendous arguments about... Mother's milk versus animal milk, and many other things. The the thing about milk arguments is that they don't go away because they don't get resolved. We just get more and more. We keep adding to them. Uh, so there's you know there's newer milk arguments, and there's really old arguments. I guess the oldest one is whether you should use animals, and then after that, which animals you should use, but which hasn't been resolved. And, um, the arguments about uh, raw milk versus pasteurization, which came about in the 19th century, uh, haven't been resolved. And, you know, we have newer ones about GMO crops for food, for feed, and. Um, I've read about
1: donkey milk and camel milk in your book. That, those were new to me. I hadn't heard those before. And we've had people here recently with pea milk. Uh, we can make some joke bathroom jokes about that. But it's like you know, milk
3: from peas. So there's lots of milk substitutes out there. Well, milk substitutes aren't, aren't new. You know, the, 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 the Catholic Church, there, were, there was this belief in the Middle Ages that milk was blood. <laughs> and so it was a kind of blood, a white blood. And the church uh, did not allow the consumption of blood or red meat on holy days, which were about half the days of the calendar. So that meant that you uh, you, you couldn't use milk on holy days. So what they did is they used almond milk. They used lots of almond milk in the Middle Ages. And if you look at medieval recipes, they'll say, you know, take a cup of milk or almond milk, meaning, you know, depending on which day in the calendar it is.
1: We wanted to talk to an actual dairy farmer. As we're talking about milk and cows and, and methane. So uh, we talked with uh, the CEO of the St. Benoit Creamery, where he's talking about some of his company's business decisions.
4: I'm uh, Eric Bartom. I'm the CEO of St. Benoit Creamery. We are a small creamery in uh, Sonoma, California. Our milk is very little processed. It's low pasteurized, and it cannot travel much we are completely non-GMO and organic. So we know the animals are well treated. This is very important to us. The second thing is that we get milk from Jersey cows and Jersey cows like to go on pasture. So they're not cows that like to sit on a farm uh, like Holsteins could be. They're on pasture all year long. Of course, one of the sacrifices is that when you go with this kind of breed, the productivity or the amount of milk that's produced by a cow in a day is certainly less than it can be with a lazy Holstein. The costs or the price that we pay the farmer for the milk is much more, way more, almost three times uh, the price of a regular Holstein cow. So uh, our products are not cheap. Our products are, I would say, expensive on the markets, but it's also for a clientele that is caring about the environment, caring about the animals, and caring about having good food for themselves or for their families.
1: That's the CEO of the St. Benoit Creamery, Eric Batum. Uh, So Anna LaPay, there's a lot in there. Uh, Poke at Holstein cows. We'll get Mark Karolansky on that. Uh, But the idea that uh, wholesomeness and economic uh, value, uh, environmental concern costs more, is that elitist? Is that true?
0: Well, is it true, and is it elitist, or different mm-hmm. questions? I think <laughs> uh, I would say that you know if you want to talk about elitism i would I think the entire way our current food system is structured is inherently elitist, where the worst paid folks in our economy are in the food sector you know, where you have an entire concentration of wealth where some of the best paid CEOs are in the food sector, and at the same time you have farm workers barely able to feed themselves you know that to me is the elitist dynamic of our food system uh, to the cost question you know does it cost more to mm-hmm. say support you know i, I don 't know how many of you have had that product I have it 's quite delicious and it is quite expensive. Uh, <laughs> It it can certainly cost more to, say, the individual consumer in the marketplace, and uh, part of that is because we are paying uh, the true cost of our food when you're paying more, when you're actually giving more of your dollar to the farmer. Um, But what... Is exciting to me when we start looking at these sustainability solutions is that actually I like to tell the story that ultimately they're going to cost us a whole lot less because the kinds of practices that sustainable farmers are using on their land don't incur the costs that you and I all incur in our taxpayer dollars when we have to spend uh, money to pay for the pollution that's caused by agriculture or pay for uh, all the other Uh, externalities, as economists like to call it, about our current industrial system. So to me, the real story is this way of farming that's going to be more in concert with nature is ultimately going to save us a lot of money, particularly when it comes to uh, how we can harness sustainable food to reduce greenhouse gas emissions and help fix the climate.
1: And a lot of people look for that grass-fed, grass-finished. Mark Kurlansky, grass-feeding is actually cheaper than grain, so why don't... More
3: farmers do the ranchers. Well, it's like all of these things, you know. They they come with a catch. Yeah, it is cheap if you have the right kind of climate, you know, Ireland and, and enough, <laughs> you know,
1: <laughs> and enough grass.
3: And well, because you have the right climate. Yeah. yeah. But on the other hand, uh, grass fed produces less. So there's there's always, you know, an economic. I, I find having talked to a lot of farmers all over the world, uh, one thing I consistently find is that these farmers are looking for a formula that works. You know, rarely do you find somebody saying, well, you do find people sometimes saying, you know, I want to be organic. I've talked to a lot of people who said they wanted to be organic and they couldn't make it work. But basically, they're they're looking for a, a formula that works. If you don't do anything, if you just... Do all the things that you're supposed to do, which have all been devised to try to make milk cheap. <laughs> I mean, like, why do we use cows in the first place? I mean, cows probably aren't the best milk, but they're the best milkers, you know. And uh, Holsteins have been bred to be the best producing uh, cows, not necessarily the best milk, but the most most productive, and 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 not terrible milk necessarily, you know. Um, you know, But if you do all that stuff like you're supposed to do, then you're kind of stuck with the milk price, the U.S. government's milk price in this country or, you know, in Australia, it's the supermarkets that determine the milk price there. And if you charge more than that price, people won't buy your milk because it's, it's more expensive unless you do something special. So that's why farmers are always looking, well, maybe if I'm organic, maybe if I'm uh, GMO-free. So you say that, that farmers, ranchers do that because of the price
1: premium, not because of some environmental ethic. It's, it's really more...
3: Well, sometimes, but, but often not. You know, I, I, I talked to this guy. Uh, he produces this very popular milk in the Hudson Valley, which is near New York City. It's, uh, it's GMO-free, and it says on the bottle, GMO-free. And I said to him... I said, so do you think that uh, GMO feed is bad? And he said, no, I don't think so. But, you know, people really like it when you say GMO free. You know? And they'll pay more. <laughs> well, I'll, and, well and and just jump
0: in, I mean, I would say that when I've talked to um, farmers around the country and around the world, one of the most interesting, I think, farmers to talk to are farmers who who have shifted to organic and asking them, well, why? Why did they make mm-hmm. the choice? And one of the, the things that I feel like I've heard more than any other answer to that question is that they made the shift because they had experienced either in their own families or in their own communities that experienced the the health impacts of growing food or raising raising crops with pesticides. And uh, one of my favorite farmers of all time, John Kinsman, a dairy farmer in Wisconsin, he said uh, he had been a conventional dairy farmer multiple generations in Wisconsin. The moment that everything changed for him is when he woke up in the hospital, and he realized he was there because of the chemicals he was using on his farm, and he totally shifted his production.
3: Organic is a complicated thing. I mean, I've talked to farmers who want it to be organic because, you know, they actually feed organic food to their families and they believe Mm -hmm. in organic, and so they want to do it. And in some cases, you know, organic is no longer an ecological term or something, it's a it's a bureaucratic term. The U.S. government defines organic and it's very difficult to do. It's very expensive and extremely difficult to do. And I've talked to many people who wanted to be organic and 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 just couldn't get ahead doing it. Um, And
1: some of them think that organic is inhumane. Mark Kurlansky, tell us how that...
3: Yes, I talked to many farmers who didn't want to be organic because they thought it was cruel to cows uh, not to give them medicine when they're sick. Uh, Or you can give them medicine, but then you can't use them in the organic herd, which is one of the many examples of how organic favors large-scale farming. Because in large-scale farming... Uh, You give them the medicine, and then you move it to the other herd because they'll maintain an organic herd and a non-organic herd. But if you're a family farm with 100 or 200 cows, you can't really do that. And and I've I've talked to many farmers who were just really bothered by this this whole idea and didn't want to do it. And in fact, there is an organization that uh, certifies farms as animal-friendly, And they won't certify organic farms.
2: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about growing and eating the foods we love. Coming up, how farmers and environmentalists can work together. And a lot of environmentalists
0: are starting to realize that farmers who really are both on the front lines of the climate impacts, but also they're on the front lines of the climate
2: solutions... That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is exploring the climate costs of food production with writers Anna LePay and Mark Kurlansky. LePay is the author of Diet for a Hot Planet, and Kurlansky's newest book is Milk A 10,000 Year Food Fracas. Let's continue with their conversation.
1: Anna LePay, one of the, the other critiques of organic is that it doesn't scale. It can't feed the world organically because mm-hmm. it takes so much land, et cetera. Do you, do you agree with that or do you challenge that?
0: Well, I definitely challenge that. I uh, challenge that on lots of different counts. Uh, first of all, I challenge that on the fundamental frame of this question of how do we feed the world. And and fundamentally, I think it's always important to remind ourselves that uh, fundamentally the, the, the root causes of hunger currently today, and it has been for for decades and decades, it's not because we aren't producing enough food, it's because of uh, what food we're producing, who has access to it. It has to do with the politics of food. You mentioned I come from a food family, so my mother, Frances Morla some of you may know, uh, she's been drumming home this message for decades now, which is that the root cause of hunger is a a scarcity of democracy, not a scarcity of food. So in other words, you know, we could today, we're producing 2,900 calories, is for every man, woman, and child, and yet a billion people are still going hungry. So I always think it's important that we're not just having this debate about what production method is going to be best, but also how do we put that into a bigger context. Uh, With that said, what thrills me about the story of organic farming, or as folks especially internationally call it agroecology, agroecological farming, uh, that's a word I think that doesn't go over so well in the English language, Uh, but but the principles of it are, are fabulous. And what we're finding is study after study showing that actually, when you're applying these agroecological principles, really bringing knowledge to farming, and what I would call knowledge-intensive farming versus input-intensive farming, that actually yields are often comparable with, say, the chemical counterpart without any of the costs, the health costs, and frankly, the cost to the farmer of having to spend money on those inputs. We're seeing in many places around the world a whole movement of farmers embracing these practices, finding their farms do better. Talk about good news for climate, that these agroecological farms, uh, studies are showing they do much better during moments of climate extremes. They uh, do much better uh, during uh, times of drought. They're better at retaining water in the soil because they're building healthy soil. mean, all the things that we know we're going to need in a climate unstable future, these farms are doing well for us, not, you know, compared to the chemical farms that are not.
1: So another term that I've heard related to that which is more memorable perhaps uh, <laughs> not a, uh, is climate smart agriculture and yeah. yet there's some big companies that are trying to perhaps support that you might say co-opt that but yeah. what's wrong with climate smart ag? So
0: so yeah so when I uh, was researching uh, and writing this book Die for a Hot Planet I used the term climate smart and climate friendly and then the book came out and I noticed some of our biggest uh, uh, agribusiness companies starting to use the term and uh, what We're finding that in this decade that we've gone from food being totally off the radar in terms of the climate conversation to being part of the climate conversation is a lot of the companies, the food companies that are now part of the climate conversation in a way they don't want to be, where they realize actually we're, we're a key driver here. You're starting to see uh, false solutions being presented by some of these companies saying, well, we can. Uh, you know, one example is um, there's been a lot of conversation about how we need to use our, our soils to get carbon dioxide out of the atmosphere and bring it back into the soils, what's called carbon sequestration we're starting to see a move by some of the biggest food companies and biggest investors in the world to do what some people are calling land grabs, basically buying up a huge swaths of land to do these short-term, big, large-scale carbon sequestration projects that have dubious carbon sequestration benefits but are profiting some of the biggest companies in the world. So you know, I think it's important that we bring our critical mind uh, to any kind of silver bullet uh, solution that's coming from the very companies that have gotten us really into this mess.
1: Mark Kurlansky, is big always bad?
3: (laughs) Uh, I think big is not necessarily always bad, but, you know, small is usually good. Is small
1: efficient? You know, one of the, the classic economics is big, uh, helps uh, drive down the
3: cost. I guess I'm thinking of— Well, a- one, thing I, one thing I learned in spending a lot of years in studying fisheries is that efficiency is not always a good thing. Mm-hmm. It's actually sometimes a thing you want to avoid.
1: We have a cult of efficiency sometimes. Yeah, it's, yeah. Um, Yet yeah, I'm thinking of a, a scene, a, a, a very memorable scene in Food Inc., the documentary, where so the Walmart guys go to the farm. I, I'm not sure if Gary Hirschberg is there from. Um, and Walmart banned the growth hormone in milk that you know changed that market overnight. And. and Probably think that's a good thing. I don't know, but that's an example of a big company. When a big company makes a change, it can have quite a profound impact.
3: Yeah, and and I don't think um, I don't think you should ever have that attitude. You know, I, I think you should always have the attitude that you should try to work with people. I do a lot of um, talk radio interviews, and I get these people who call in, environmental people and different causes that they're pushing and they talk about farmers like they're the enemy Mm -hmm. and i tell them you know you want to change things the first thing you have to do is understand farmers and learn how to talk to them because the way you're talking to them (laughs) there's going to be any kind of communication
1: yeah how about that anna there's you know we don't you know talk to people who disagree with us much in this country anymore and certainly a lot of people maybe if you go to a farmer's market you talk to people who produce food but uh, for a lot of environmentalists, ranchers and farmers are, yeah, the villains. Yeah, I th- yeah. I th- well,
3: I th- you're well, I was going to yeah. say.
0: I mean, I, I think that story is changing too a little bit. And I will just, just, just to correct the historical record on the Walmart and banning mm-hmm. uh, that growth hormone. Really, what pushed that that movement away from this artificial growth hormone RBGH, where, uh, as far as I know, no dairy. Farmers using it today right. was dairy farmers and consumers together really putting a stand up against you know saying they didn't like want. the results. Yeah. <laughs> but um, but on this question about you know this farmers and ranchers and and, and uh, environmentalists and you know can we all be can we all be friends? Uh, what has been encouraging to me again over the past real decade of this of this conversation about climate and food is that we're seeing I think new alliances and, and a deepening of understanding of how it's certainly not helpful to pit ourselves as, as, as opponents if we have the shared goal of fixing the climate. And to me, the, again, this food sector is a place where we're seeing real climate solutions and a lot of environmentalists are starting to realize that farmers who really are both on the front lines of the climate impacts, But also they're on the front lines of the climate solutions. They're the ones who are really the stewards of of our soils, which, again, is one of the biggest carbon sinks on the planet. And that when you bring these ecological practices to the farm, you're seeing a real power for biodiversity to go up. Uh, You're seeing a huge push toward agroforestry bringing uh, trees onto farms, and has, that has incredible environmental benefits. So to me, I think there's uh, more of an understanding of how there's, there's more ways we can work
3: together. M- m- most farmers and most ranchers and most fishermen do not want to do harm. They do want to earn a living, and if their ways of earning a living are doing harm— You know, you have to convince them that there's a better way to do it. They really, by and large, are not evil people. Mm. You know, I've I've seen with um, fish farming, you know, fish, uh, salmon farming uh, was started by Norwegians. And they never wanted to be the bad guys. You know, they didn't they didn't foresee that. And. So they, they have gotten concerned about how bad their image is and, and, and have recognized, not all of them, but some of them, the Norwegians who started it, actually, um, that they're creating problems and they're doing some things wrong and they're, and they're trying to find solutions and, and they will talk to people. And, they, you know, as a journalist, I can sit down with them. And they, and they will say yes, X, Y, and Z. These things are really bad. We have got to figure out some way to change it. That's the kind of dialogues that have to happen. And
1: another thing, Mark Kurlansky, you write about uh, the shortage of workers in dairy, and there's those there's robots coming. There's, already yeah, there's going to
3: be more and more because you know every farmer I talk to can't get uh, he, he can't get help. I mean, it's a, it's a really hard job, and there's no money in it. And you know, some young guys starting off. Usually doesn't want to do that unless, you know, the ones that do do it come from a five-generation farming family or something. And are the robots coming there too? Robots are going to be more and more in farming, especially dairy, yeah.
1: Uh, Anna LaPay, are food miles overstated, <laughs> exaggerated? There's, you know, Michael Pollan educated a lot of people about food miles. Look where your food comes from, and yet some people think that food miles have been kind of overblown.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, that was one of the things I was really curious about. And, and actually, if you look at the the the, the science around you know, what percentage of your of the uh, greenhouse gas emissions associated with the transport of your food, you know, what percentage of your uh, of your food that is, it's it's actually a relative relatively small percentage but what i would sort of caution folks to to do though is not say okay then we can you know get this food from halfway around the world and get this food from, you know, the other halfway around the world, uh, is that local is often proxy, actually, for a whole suite of other benefits of your food. Uh, so, you know, when, when, a, when a Michael Pollan is talking about supporting and buying local food, I'm pretty sure Michael is not meaning, you know, the, if you live near a Twinkie factory, go buy the Twinkie, <laughs> right? He's, he really means support your your region of your regional food shed. He means, you know, go to the farmers that are promoting biodiversity, that are, that are keeping your land protected from sprawl, that are, you know, tending to you, your watershed. The kind you of
3: don't think the local want. Twinkies are better?
0: So, I don't know. <laughs> I don't live near a Twinkie factory, as far as I know. So, no,
3: but you know, I, I, I um, you had mentioned this book I had done, uh, uh, Food of a Younger Land, which was uh, uh, food writing that was done for the WPA in the 1930s. Hmm. And um, the food was all local, and you know one of the results of that that you could see was that in most places people ate really badly in the winter time. Uh, if you read this book, you're going to think twice about being a locavore. Mm-hmm.
1: Well, it's a luxury that certain people in Mediterranean climates have. right? Yes.
0: Right. And, you know, I think to me uh, what is important to, to realize when you, when you bring up this food miles question and start thinking about it is it really starts drilling you down then to this question of, well, then what is the most important thing? If you care about the environmental impact of your food or you want to eat a more climate friendly diet, it's really a question of... What are you eating? How is it grown? Where was it grown? And uh, because most of the the percentage of greenhouse gas emissions associated with your food come from that agricultural production slice. It's about 80 to 85 percent. So that brings us into, you know, what we what have the most impact.
1: Why? Yeah. What is food? And Anna LaPay, you have a a TEDx talk about uh, empathy for both for 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 workers. And so talk about the collective empathy of food Mm -hmm. and
0: yeah so uh, I was talking in that speech this this idea of this way that food can actually elicit our innate sense of empathy. Uh, I started thinking about it as I started reflecting on the farmers and farm workers i 'd met and started realizing that you know when I make food choices for myself and uh, my family, you know I do really think about how does this food choice not just feed my two daughters the, the healthiest food for them, but it really does create the sense of empathy in me where I think about, you know, was there a farm worker mother living in Salinas Valley who had to be exposed to chlorpyrifos, a toxic insecticide, to grow the lettuce that I'm giving my kids for dinner? And realizing that for me, for instance, choosing food that isn't grown with toxic pesticides is an empathetic choice, that it's both both really about my care for myself and really my kids, but really it's about caring for people all across the food chain and and how I think food can be this this act of expression of that collective empathy for the farmer you're never going to meet, the farm worker you're never going to meet, the butterfly and bee you're never going to see buzz by, but you know was saved because you didn't purchase the food that was grown with the neonicotinoid that killed those Bees and butterflies. So, I think there is a way that it can tap us into, I think, a really beautiful part of human nature, which is our capacity to feel empathy.
3: Yeah. Can, okay. I, can I just talk a minute about pesticides? Because it's an interesting example. You know, before uh, DDT was developed during World War II uh, because American troops in the Pacific were getting a lot of malaria. And um, before DDT came along, Basically, what farmers did was what is called biological control, which is you bring in the bug that eats the bug that you want to get rid of, mm-hmm. and it's a very difficult and complicated thing because you're talking about you know in, invasive species and bringing in things that weren't supposed to be there, and you know in nature there's always uh, biologists call it the law of unintended consequences, um, but research on the science just sort of went away. When um, DDT came along and all the research went into coming up with more and more kinds of chemicals to 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 kill them and, it, and its an example of how um, corporations uh, took over science and, and really pointed it in a in wrong direction.
0: Mm-hmm. yeah I mean, the figure is about about one percent uh, ma- maybe two percent of all research dollars is going to exploring these biological yeah. control methods, and the rest of it is going to to to, to this chemical model of agriculture which Right, we're for, seeing creates for, these pesticide who, treadmills. Was it
3: Dow? Who is it? Better Living With Chemicals?
0: Mm-hmm. DuPont maybe. But <laughs> yeah. They're now one company so.
3: Right. <laughs> we're talking about
1: food and climate change at Climate One. I'm Greg Dalton. My guests are Mark Kurlansky, best selling author and Anna LaPay, a food advocate and also best selling author. We're going to go to our lightning round and ask some quick questions of our guests today. Uh, first section is association. I'll mention a noun and you mentioned the first thing. Oh, this that, is kind of scary. So the first thing that comes to your mind, Anna LaPay if I say chocolate mm, delicious Mark Kurlansky kale green was the first thing <laughs> that came to my
3: mind <laughs> Anna
1: Lepe, quinoa Mmm questions Uh, True or false, Anna LaPay, you have met foodies who care more about the temperature of their goat cheese than the homeless people outside their grocery store.
0: Mm, Have I met them? I'm not sure.
1: You heard about them? I've heard about them, yes. Okay. Uh, True or false, Mark Kurlansky, 60% of people in the world are lactose intolerant.
3: That is correct.
1: Last question in our lightning round true or false for Anna LaPay. You secretly dream of watching Three's Company and eating Cheetos.
0: (laughs) Oh, is that, that, you're you're quoting me. So I I guess sometimes, in this TEDx talk, I confessed that as a child, uh, we had to keep our um, television locked in the closet. It would only come out occasionally. And, you know, the closest thing I got to junk food in the kitchen was, you know, I think, a rice cracker and maybe some honey on top of it. So I said, you know, secretly sometimes I would dream of eating Cheetos and watching freeze his
1: All right, let's give them a round for getting through that gauntlet of the (laughs) lightning round here at Climate One.
2: You're listening to a conversation about changing our diet to save the planet. This is Climate One. Coming up, making hard choices at the meat counter.
3: And the guy in this heavy New York accent said, Make up your mind, lady. You <laughs> want to be a locovore or you want to be a grass
2: <laughs> You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking with authors Mark Kurlansky and Anna LaPay. Both have written books on global food production and its connection to climate change.
1: Let's get back to their discussion. Here's Greg. So Anna Lopez, someone who wants to eat a climate-friendly diet, what should they eat? What should they not do?
0: Well... Yeah, that's a good question. And kind of depends what your starting point is, what you might need to shift off and on your plate. Uh, for the average American who's consuming about twice as much protein as their bodies can use, and if you over-consume protein, you don't store it for later, it's essentially wasted calories, I would say a really good place to start for the average American is removing some meat uh, off that plate. Uh, we know that uh, currently the way we're producing our beef cattle in particular uh, have a really high climate... Uh, footprint, and so in particular, looking at uh, shifting away from the beef you find in the supermarket, I uh, have been digging into the, the the evidence about you know is it possible that 100% grass-fed beef managed on pastures using uh, you know really really uh, uh, complex systems to make sure that the cattle are helping build up the soil carbon content. And I think there's some really interesting science around that. Can the typical consumer find that in the supermarket? Probably not, so I don't think that's a really helpful message. But the good news around what does a climate-friendly diet look like, it's all the things that you've probably been hearing lots of other people talk about in terms of what's good for your health uh, and good for water, good for all kinds of things. It's eating more organically grown food. Organic agriculture has a much lower carbon footprint, uses much less energy, uh, and again, has all of those resiliency benefits. It means eating less packaged food. It means eating more in season. Uh, All these things that, you know, those are the, the lessons we're learning about what a healthy diet looks like. So there's a good, a nice synergy between what's good for the climate and good for you. And then the final thing I would say is to not waste your food. We in the U S are wasting about 40% of all food that we could uh, eat Uh, globally. uh, It ranges, but that's about on par with the global figures. And so just food waste alone, we could significantly uh, reduce the climate impact of our food and feed more people if we weren't wasting so much food.
1: Mark Kurlansky, your next book is on salmon. You're quite concerned about the fate of the oceans. That's a big source of, of protein for, for people around the world. Tell us a glimpse into your next book on salmon, how they're doing.
3: Well, <clears throat> salmon, which is a really remarkable animal. I mean, an animal that can jump 10 feet in the air and uh, just, just has this incredible life cycle and gives up its life to spawn. And mm-hmm. <laughs> just uh, The problem with salmon is just about everything that we're doing wrong. I mean, it's really remarkable. Salmon are in trouble uh, because of bad fishery management, because of bad farming practices, because of deforestation, uh, because of um, uh, irrigation, because of climate change. Really, I want people to save the salmon because all you have to do to save the salmon is save the earth. Right.
1: (laughs) We talked a little bit about aquaculture. Is that inevitable? Can aquaculture be done sustainably? A lot of times restaurants will say, oh, this is sustainably farmed."
3: The the problem with aquaculture is that it doesn't address the issue and that people uh, embrace it as though it does. It addresses the issue of uh, how can I get some fish, but it doesn't, you know, these these animals are dying out because of what we're doing to the planet, and the fact that we can create a few fake ones doesn't in any way address the problem of what we're doing to the planet.
1: Anna there's some companies that are doing what's called clean meat, which is you know either beef uh, uh, burger without the cow, you know uh, tuna fish sandwich without without the tuna. Is that a, perhaps a, a solution that doesn't have the environmental impacts to uh, create meat in a laboratory?
0: Well, I would say there's really two different categories that are getting lumped together by the industry. Gave themselves this this nice uh, nice sounding term, clean meat. Uh, you have really, I think it's important for us us to understand there's really two different uh, paths of essentially alternatives to what we think of uh, of you know, animal-based proteins. One path is uh, these plant-based proteins that are actually based on plants. So it's products that are uh, trying to create alternatives to dairy using, say, legumes grown in France to make a product called Ripple uh, that's an alternative to milk. On the other hand, you have these companies uh, that are creating meat products in a lab, uh, and they are cultured. They have starter cultures that tend to come from crops that are not so good for the environment, like sugarcane. Uh, they require a lot of energy. I remember going to a uh, clean meat conference, and during the breakout session at lunchtime, there was an entire corner of the room piled with a pyramid of plastic Petri dishes, and then in front <laughs> was a little sample of a burger, and they were saying, well, we're... We're still trying to figure out how to scale this, but that's how many Petri dishes we <laughs> need to make this burger here. There's a ton of questions I and a lot of other folks that are that are more expert in this than I are asking about these companies. And yet a lot of investor dollars are going in, I think, for you know these reasons that we understand that, you know, when when beef cattle uses three fifths of the world's land, but is only giving us five percent of our protein calories, we should be rethinking uh, meat, I think. Doing it this way to me raises a lot more questions than are answered so far, and what I've seen from what these companies are putting out about what they're
3: doing. The thing is that that we are kind of in our attempt to help people, we're making life really difficult for people because they're just inundated with all of these choices. And you know, I I was uh, recently in a Whole Foods and at the meat counter. And they had these New York uh, steaks. Not New York cut, but, you know, from New York. And, and, this, and this woman said, well, do you have anything that's grass-fed? And, and they said, uh, yeah, these over here are grass-fed. And she said, but that says Australia. And he says, yeah, they're, they're, they're from Australia. And she says, can I get something local that's grass-fed? And the guy in this heavy New York accent said... Make up your mind, lady. (laughs) You want to be a locavore or you want to be a grass (laughs) fed?
1: Which gets to the point of, like, uh, how much time people spend at the grocery store. Anna LaPay, I have this image of you spending five hours in the grocery store because you're, like, analyzing and looking on the Internet, (laughs) you know, uh, because it's complex. You go to, you know, for Marine Stewardship Council, all these different labels. Is it it easier than that? It's
0: really, uh, I mean, we're lucky in that we have a grocery store that's locally owned and does a lot of my sort of thinking for me and having great products on the shelves. But actually, I really push back around the, like, Like, it's too confusing Uh, messaging because actually eating this sort of climate friendly diet, if you want to call it that, you you actually erase a lot of the questions that you have. I mean, when I look at our kitchen, I mean, we don't have that many brands. We don't have that much packaged food. So I don't have to, you know, go into, you know, what's the latest labor atrocity of this company? Is it okay to buy it? You know, because we're we're eating mostly whole whole foods, not from the Whole Foods grocery store, but Whole Foods, like real food that then we have to cook. Um, What I would say, though, to this, like, it's, it's complicated, is, and we haven't really touched on this yet together, is that to me, then, the story needs to wrap into what are the policy changes we need to make so that we as individual consumers don't have to, it's not all on us, right? We don't have to be constantly bombarded with, you know, is this label telling us the right thing? Does this have some toxic pesticide? We should have a set of policies that raises the floor so that when you go into the grocery store, you don't have to worry, does that can have a lining that might make your kid sick? Does that company produce palm oil in Indonesia that's going to worsen climate change? We should be setting policies in place so that that floor gets raised so we as individuals don't have to be doing that thinking.
1: Mark Kurlansky, some of the things that that people are concerned about in the fish, for example, there, there's some myths about safety, and there's one about uh, people have all heard, probably heard about uh, salmon that's that's dyed with you know the, the same things that
3: the <laughs> Shirley Temple cherries are, or something like that. Yeah. Uh, is that true? No, it, it's, you, you know when they first started uh, farming salmon, uh, when you farm salmon, it's not, it doesn't have the kind of crustacean dye that it has at sea, and so the flesh doesn't turn that pink color. It's, it's white which they were fine with, but nobody bought it. And for a while they tried to market it as white salmon, but nobody wanted it. So they uh, got the stuff from the crustaceans to feed to the uh, farmed salmon so that they would have that color. And a lot of people, you know, they, they think... They're giving them red dye number two or something. It's, it's, it's not. They're just sort of recreating what, what would happen at sea. I mean, there's, there, there's, there's a lot of issues with, with farmed salmon, but that really isn't one of them.
1: Before we go to audience questions, I want to ask each of you. You've done some interesting travels, Mark uh, virtually, and Anna. Um, actually, with your mother, you, you, bef- you visited five continents to write the book, Hope's Edge. So tell us about that journey and kind of, you know, five continents in, in one minute. But you know, <laughs>
0: Okay, so yes, my mother and I wrote a book together, which when I tell that to people, sometimes they're shocked you could write a book with your mother. Uh, but we, uh, we looked at examples around the world where people were developing these really creative solutions to make food systems work for health and climate. And to me, I think one of the most inspiring uh, experiences was going to one of the largest cities in Brazil, a city called Belo Horizonte, or Beautiful Horizon, and seeing what a city government could do if they started looking at food differently, not just as another commodity to be sold in the marketplace, but as a basic human right. And if food becomes a human right... Then all of a sudden these elected officials in the city had a whole different frame of mind about policy making about well then it's our responsibility as the elected officials here to ensure that everybody has a right to access good healthy food. And what we saw was within a decade they had innovated all of these incredible policies which in one minute I won't have time to go into uh, but they had decreased infant mortality by something like 73%. They had decreased hunger by some huge margin. They had helped all the regional farmers by connecting them to urban consumers and they had really really i would not say solved hunger but as one of my friends put it who wrote a whole book about this uh they had begun to end hunger and uh, that was to see that on a scale you asked about scale to see that on a scale of a huge city really doing this incredible work through again really creative policies was really inspiring and some of those policies that we witnessed there in bellow now i have seen spreading all around the world
1: let's go to our audience questions welcome to okay. climate one Thank you. Very good program. My name is Tom McCown. Uh, there's growing bipartisan interest in a, a tax or a fee with dividend on carbon in the energy sector. How will that play out on the carbon footprint in the food sector? Make it better, make it worse, impact health or improve health?
0: I think um, what I, how I would answer that actually is to give an example of what we're seeing here in the state of California that I think is really exciting and I think most people don't know about, which is how can we look at the revenues from uh, cap-and-trade policies like we have here in California? How can we ensure that some of those revenues are going into agricultural systems that will be good for the climate. So they'll be benefiting farmers and also helping farmers develop the kinds of practices on their land that are going to reduce the uh, emissions from the ag sector in California. And there is a network in California called the California Agriculture and Climate Action Network, or CALCAN, that actually developed this really creative policy and amazingly so, got it passed. And now there is revenue coming into California farmers to look at how can they bring these conservation practices to their farms. And so it's policies like this that can help farmers do what is complicated stuff on the farm, do it do it more, do it better, and get some compensation for it.
1: Let's go to our next question. Welcome.
0: Hi, my name is Hope Sobronski, and I work for an environmental nonprofit. And my question to you all is, how do you believe we can pay the true cost of food while also taking into consideration equity, traditional cultures, and socioeconomic status? Anna LePay? Yeah, that's a, a great question, and, and it gets back to this, both the human right to... F- food, uh, and also the the right of peoples to uh, indigenous peoples to their land, and uh, one of the, the facts that I heard recently is 75% of the world's biodiversity is on the land held by indigenous peoples around the world, and so we really want to be thinking about how do we protect That land. How do we protect those peoples and the rights to their land, and um, and you know not to keep coming back to policy, (laughs) but you know I think it does. It comes back to where, how are we regulating our agricultural system, and how are we forcing those that are really uh, the drivers of these costs paying? paying those costs. So um, so right now, for instance, I was just looking at how much the uh, factory farm industry in this country, how much uh, antibiotics are used. You mentioned this is an issue in dairy. Well, antibiotics are used rampantly in our industrial agricultural system, about three quarters or more of all antibiotics used in this country. It's not used in hospitals, but it's used in factory farms. And only a tiny bit of that is actually around animal health. The largest reason why we're feeding animals antibiotics is actually to promote growth because it promotes growth really fast. And if you look at the cost, the healthcare costs we're experiencing of antibiotic resistance, that's a huge cost. Now, is the pharmaceutical company that's Providing those antibiotics to that factory farm, paying any of that cost is the is the is the producer that's feeding the animal. You know that that product paying any of it? No. So to me, it's a complicated question of how do we get some of these costs revealed and how do we get uh, uh, regulations and policies in place so that those that are really causing this impacts uh, carrying some of the burden um, or a regulation place that say in the case of antibiotics there's been um, work going on for, for decades to try to uh, force companies to disallow companies uh, to use uh, sub-therapeutic levels of antibiotics.
1: And Lopez, is a food advocate and author we're talking about food and climate change at Climate One. Let's go to our next question.
3: I'm Don Lawrence, an old football coach.
1: My question is this just over the last 200 years, the increase in population, does that affect climate change more than a lot of things? And the multiple is keep on going. Thank you. I know pay, a lot of environmentalists yep. don't like to talk about population. It's a messy social issue that they don't like to go there.
0: Yeah, well... Uh you know, I, I see it as n- not so much a messy social issue as uh, actually a really important conversation about women's rights. And also a conversation that totally connects to the food conversation. Because all around the world, uh, the majority of farmers are women. And part of the reason why uh, we have population growth is that women aren't empowered to get an education uh, and they don't have the resources to uh, feed their families. And so when you start looking at how do you create a farming system that actually does help those small-scale farmers be able to stay on the land and thrive, does support women and girls' education, you start changing the entire story of population growth. Uh, One of the books that uh, has come out recently about climate change I think is uh, a really important read is Drawdown. You might have had Paul Hawken on your program. But one of the biggest areas for uh, how we address climate change that he talks about in that book and many other folks have said is women's rights Uh, education for girls and that actually that you know you hear demographers say we're going to double the world's population by whatever year they like to say and those demographic changes are not set in stone and actually they can when you invest in women's education and when you invest in supporting girls you know that that entire story changes
2: greg dalton has been talking about how the food we eat helps heat up our planet and some possible solutions His guests were Anna LaPay, author of Diet for a Hot Planet, The Climate Crisis at the End of Your Fork and What You Can Do About It. And Mark Kurlansky has written the bestsellers Cod and Salt. His latest book is Milk, a 10,000-year food fracas. To hear all our Climate One conversations, subscribe to our podcast at our website, climateone.org, where you'll also find photos, video clips, and more. If you like the program, please let us know by writing a review on iTunes, or wherever you get your podcasts. And join us next time for another conversation about America's energy, economy, and environment.
1: Climate One is a project of the Commonwealth Club of California. Kelly Pennington directs our audience engagement. Carlos Manuel and Tyler Reed are producers. The audio engineer is Mark Kirshner. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.